I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. We'll be in Romans chapter 5 today, continuing our two-part series through a section of the chapter. I believe it's page 942 in the Blue Pew Bible in front of you. If you don't own a Bible or you don't like your own Bible, feel free to take that one as our gift to you. I'll begin reading in verse 12, but we're going to focus on verses 15 through 21 today. I'll start at 12 so that last week's text is fresh in our minds as we go into this week's. Hear now what Holy Scripture says. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread To all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God. And the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased... Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. These are the words of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, And what we are not make us for your son's sake. Amen. Well, last week we considered the dark backdrop of the gospel. The entrance of sin and death into the world by Adam and humanity's greatest and deepest problem, which is the sentence of condemnation that God has sentenced every person to ever live to everlasting torment apart from him because they've sinned in Adam. But this week, we get the privilege to consider the diamond that sparkles all the brighter because of this dark backdrop, which is our salvation, a free gift given to us in Christ Jesus. Now, a gift is considered great based on several factors. One, who gives the gift? Two, the cost at which the gift was obtained. 
And three, the need of the gift. And the reason why the gift of salvation is so great is because not only does it, does it come from God who gives the gift, not only is it at the cost of the life of his own son, but our need of the gift is great. Who will undo the curse of Adam and reverse the devastating effects of the fall? That was the main question consuming the church after Adam fell and before Jesus was born. Who will come and cause us to rise from our fallenness and bring peace with God if it's not the Lord Jesus Christ, the true and the better Adam, the one who was to come, as verse 14 says. What I want to do this morning is unwrap this free gift of salvation and consider what we gain as Christians by this gift. I'm often amazed at how we don't realize the value of our own birthright, the value of our inheritance as sons and daughters of the king. And how can we recapture the grandeur and the majesty and the surprise of God's redeeming grace in the gospel, but by plunging back again into the scriptures so that we might rise from it refreshed by his promises. So what have we gained from this free gift of salvation? Our text, I believe, has three things in mind. We gain an abundance of grace, right standing with God, and dominion over sin and death. An abundance of grace, right standing with God, and dominion over sin and death. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus this morning, these are your promises and your inheritance. And I trust by considering them afresh this morning, we'll be encouraged by so great a God that we have and so great a salvation that we have. Let's look at the first of them, an abundance of grace. Whenever Paul speaks about grace, did you notice that he is insistent that the reader knows it's abundant? Look down with me at verse 15. The grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Verse 17, those who receive the abundance of grace. Verse 20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Abundance, abounded, abundance, abounded. It's all over the text. Lest we think from last week that the spread of Adam's sin to all mankind means that the problem is greater than our solution... Paul shows us how God's grace not only meets our problem, but it far exceeds it. His grace overflows to humanity even more than sin overflowed from Adam to all his descendants. Much more. You look for that phrase. He says it over and over. Much more are the words of the apostles. Throughout verses 15 through 21, Paul is showing how Adam foreshadowed Christ... But he's careful to do so by contrast. You see, it's not so much what they have in common, but it's what they don't have in common that makes Adam a type of Christ. And the contrast is how much more we've received in Christ than what we received in Adam. So Christ surpasses Adam. The sin of one is overcome by the righteousness of the other. The curse is removed by the grace of another and life now abounds where death once reigned. The emphasis is consistently on the greater achievements of Christ 
and his power to save over and against Adam's power to destroy. That's why he begins verse 15 with this like correction or a nuance. But the free gift is not like the trespass. A superabundance of grace was needed to heal an abundance of sins. And this grace overflows. It does not trickle from God's own unexpected favor towards sinners who are owed nothing from him. Almost every problem in the Christian life can be traced back to a deficient view of God's grace. Our struggle as Christians is not that we think too often about grace, but we think too little about it. A deficient view of grace is one that is too small, too meager, and too cheap. It's one that thinks out it's one that thinks that God doles out just enough grace for what we need and no more. And a wrong view of grace is one of Satan's sharpest arrows that he shoots at us. Because it can strike us on either side. It can lie to us and say that my sin is so great that God's grace can't forgive it. Or my sin is too great, or sorry, my grace is so available that I can sin however I please. And I'll just come back to God later for forgiveness and his grace will be there. Both are deficient views and small views of grace that are crippling to walking with the Lord. God's grace, it's not small, but it's, it's large towards us. He not only meets our needs, but he does so in abundance. God is, is not a penny pincher. When you think of his grace, don't picture it as like this gentle, quiet, bubbling stream hidden away in the wilderness. God's grace is a surging river that overflows the banks and floods the Christian's life. God never tires to give grace to a sinner who genuinely repents. It's what he delights to do. And we can have assurance that his mercies are new each and every morning because they come from the hand of him who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God's grace far outruns our sins, and that is good news to sinners like us. His grace even abounds when the law comes in to increase the trespass. Jump down to first, verse 20 with me. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now, to us it might seem odd that Paul suddenly shifts to the reason why the law was given. And what in the world does it mean for the, the, the trespass to increase? Well, the question Paul expects his readers to ask at this point is, if the only way we're rescued from the curse of Adam is by the salvation offered in the free gift of Jesus, then why did God give the law to Israel? Did God, like, change his mind halfway through redemptive history and say, well, these people really can't keep the law that I've given them. Might as well give them the gospel. Certainly not. One of the main mistakes I think we make sometimes when we think about the Mosaic Law is we think that it was given to grant eternal life if we only kept it perfectly. But that's not true. Ever since the foundation of the world, 
in eternity's past, God's plan of salvation has always been to send his son to redeem us. In the mind of God, the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. The purpose of the Mosaic law was not to grant eternal life, but to regulate life in the land of Canaan. And to show what true obedience to the Lord looked like so that the nation of Israel could then reflect the goodness of God to the surrounding nations. Notice that in Deuteronomy 28, the promise of blessing for obedience was not eternal life, but long years in the land. And that's why when Israel breaks the covenant, they're exiled. They're not damned. But here in verse 20, Paul focuses on another purpose that the law has. It entered to increase the trespass, meaning to increase our knowledge of what sin is. Before the law was given to Moses, men only had a dim sense of what God required of them. As we looked at last week in verse 13, men did have a sense, though, that God's moral law was ingrained on their conscience. But what happens when the law becomes, more, becomes written and more specific and more revealed to us directly from God is that we become way more aware of sins than we weren't previously. And the more revealed something is, the greater there is a requirement to obey it. Because if we're told what's right and wrong from God's own lips and still disobey, it's even a greater direct sin. It's like if parents take their child and say, do not do that thing you just did or there will be consequences. And the child just does it right in your face. That's blatant sinning rather than I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to do that. It's why that Jesus says the generation that rejected him would receive the greater condemnation because they weren't rejecting a messenger. They were rejecting God's very own son and the judge of humanity himself. But even though the law increased the trespass and increased the greatness of a violation of the law, the giving of the law in the end actually serves to further the grace magnified in the gospel. Because it shows us how great God's forgiveness is that he would have mercy on such a sinful and dreadful people like us. He who is forgiven much loves much. Even what serves to further our condemnation, the law, God redeems to magnify his grace. And I believe this is why Paul says wherever sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The giving of the law is like, it's like pulling back an arrow on a bow all the way so that when it's released, the arrow of God's grace flies much higher than it would have before. A super abundance of grace was supplied to meet an abundance of sins. And if we only knew the vastness of the grace held open to us in the hand of Christ... And the delight of the Father who gives it, we would never wait to come to Him or doubt His goodness towards us. And the free gift of salvation, the Christian receives an abundance of grace. Secondly, the Christian receives a right standing with God. The final blow that kills Adam's curse is that sinners are justified by God. Justification is what unravels 
and the fall of mankind, and it wipes clean our sentence of condemnation from Adam. It's the main way that Paul articulates our salvation, not only in this passage, but in the entire book of Romans. Romans is about how a just God justifies sinners in Christ. And I love our, how our statement of faith in Article 5 calls justification the great gospel blessing that secures every other blessing we need for time and eternity. Justification is like the entrance to the Christian life. It's like the entrance gate that you walk through. Because unless we are first pardoned by God and brought into union with his son, we can receive no other subsequent blessing that comes from our salvation. And it's precisely because justification is what secures all other blessings in our, in our union with Christ that it's a matter of the utmost importance to rightly understanding what the gospel is. You see, it's more important than something lesser and in the periphery of the Christian life. For example, Christians can differ on whether or not tongues continue or have ceased. They can differ on what the nature of prophecy is or whether infants or adults should be baptized. And we can all still be united in the same gospel, though we differ, because these are matters non-essential to the gospel, a saving understanding of the gospel. But if you err in justification on how we are made right with God, you cannot have the same gospel. And if you do not have the gospel, you really have nothing but civility dressing up in clothes of piety, an appearance of godliness, but denying its power. It's the difference of the importance of like a window on the front of your house being cracked or the foundation imploding. Right? If the foundation implodes, you just don't have a house anymore. But if a window is cracked... There's just an obvious defect on it, but you still have a house. Justification is central to a right understanding of the gospel. And if you do not affirm that we are justified by faith alone, you do not have the same gospel that the church has affirmed down through the centuries. And Paul explains here in Romans 5. You might be saying to yourself at this point, well, that's great and all, but like, what is justification? Paul uses this word multiple times. Look at verse, verse 16. The free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Verse 18. One act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. It's a biblical word, but it's one that we don't often use in everyday language. So it might be helpful to back up and ask, like, what, what does this word even mean? Maybe you've even heard this word thrown around in conversation but it's too intimidating to stop and ask, what does that mean? Because nobody really wants to be the odd one out. I, I really do pray that we'll be a church that's, that's humble and, and caring enough to create an environment where people don't have to pretend that they know something for fear of looking stupid. But can openly ask, what does that mean? And they'll be met with patient explanation. Those of you in here who are maybe further along in the Christian faith, leverage your years of study and prayer to bless those who are a couple mile, mile markers behind you. And those of you who are newer or maybe just not as studied in the, the Christian life, humble yourselves and leverage those in the church 
who know their Bible and theologies well so that they can bless you and bring you further along in your knowledge of God. This is one of the ways the the body of the church blesses and serves and builds one another up. What can be more life-giving and fruitful to the work of the ministry here than to have a better understanding of who God is and what he's done? So what does justification mean? Justification is originally a legal term, a term that Paul borrows from the courtroom. It's a legal declaration in which God the judge pardons the sinner of all his sins and accepts and considers him as righteous in his sight. The sole basis for God considering us righteous, even though we're not actually righteous yet, is the obedience and the death of his son and our representative before God, Jesus Christ. This means then that justification is a sentence of righteous that God passes on us, not something that we participate in, in, in achieving. When we are justified, God looks at us and he sees his son. He does not consider us dead, but alive. No longer in Adam, no longer with a sentence of condemnation hanging over our heads, because there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. A a great transfer happened on the cross where Christ received our sin and we receive his righteousness. It's important uh, we understand that justification is not God deciding on a whim to no longer be angry. Justification is not a setting aside of wrath, but it's actually a satisfaction of it. God would, would not be just to go back on his word of condemnation against Adam and all his children by all of a sudden deciding, you know what, I'm, I'm done with all that now. Don't, don't worry about it. I'm just going to be gracious. It's, it's why we speak of justification coming at the cost of the life of Christ. And the free gift is greater because of the cost at which it was obtained. The prophet Isaiah says that it was the will of God the Father to crush his son and put him to grief on account of our sins. And this is why Jesus trembled in the Garden of Gethsemane. And if you remember, he goes a little bit of ways and falls on his face and sweats drops of blood. The reason he was frightened was not mainly because he was about to be arrested by the Romans. But he was dreading the one who could cast both body and soul into hell. His soul was exceedingly troubled because he stood on the brink of hell and peered into the full righteous fury of God towards sinners that would fall on him. It's why he cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting from Psalm 22. It's why his heart The psalm says, melted like wax within his chest, and he was laid down into the dust of death. Because on the cross, he was descending into hell to receive the sentence of condemnation that was ours from Adam. It was that's why we say it was our sins that held him there. And on the cross, he hung as one man 
with the crushing weight of our guilt upon his soul, which was the full execution of God's vengeance that he should have rightly poured out on us. But instead, he stood in the gap and took it. God looks at him on the cross and says, I find you guilty. So that he can turn to us and say, I find you righteous. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, Adam's children are healed. Every sin that you've committed and every sin that you will commit was laid upon him. And no sin was forgotten at the cross. No sin escaped the perfect accounting of the judge. And it's why you can have peace that there is none more of the guilt for you to bear. It's why grace is not cheap. It's why it's, it's more amazing that it overflows in abundance towards us because each drop in the stream of grace was paid for at infinite cost and yet it abounds. His blood is as sufficient today to cleanse you from all your sin as it was when it flowed warm from his wounds and stained the wood of the cross. Much more has the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And just as one act of Adam led to our condemnation, so one act of Christ leads to our justification. He is indeed the true and the better Adam, as we sung moments earlier. God's wrath is satisfied towards us who believe. And this is the good news of the gospel. And this is justification. It's the power of the gospel that saves. It's, it's the engine of the gospel. And without it, the car doesn't run. It's why if we truly love the gospel and are to be a people marked by the gospel in a gospel church, we will hate all that sneaks in to distort the gospel, to drain it of its saving power. It's why, as I was speaking earlier, getting justification right is so foundational. Because it's not just a matter of preference. Because a departure from it, as Paul warns in Galatians 1, is a turning to a different gospel that does not save, but as Paul says, damns to hell. And a church that has lost the gospel is no church at all. And all who join themselves to it are in danger of eternal ruin of their souls. It's a very serious and fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God and presume upon his kindness. Our beliefs about doctrine matter far more than we often realize. Keep watch then over your own soul that you don't begin to believe the lies of a different gospel because there are many of them. There is a different gospel tailor-made for each one of us that will uniquely be suited to deceive and pry upon our most vulnerable desires to turn us away from Christ.
it's important that you know that mostly all of what I've just said about justification by faith alone and, and the glories that Paul lists here in Romans 15, 5, 15 through 21 are not held by every institution that calls themselves a church. The entire reason that the Protestant Reformation took place in the 14 and 1500s is because the biblical teaching that God's righteousness is offered to us as an unmerited gift had become so obscured and darkened by the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church that it was almost lost. And as the light of the gospel flickered in those medieval days and was threatened with extinction, the reformers come along and they carefully fanned that flame back into fullness. I think it will be helpful for us to consider for a better understanding of justification by faith alone what it is not. See, in the Reformation, the the Roman Catholic Church was teaching and still teaches to this day that God does not declare you righteous in a moment of time but instead infuses righteousness as a process into us. First through baptism as an infant, which cleanses you from original sin, and then it's continued through penance in the sacramental system of the church. So so what this means then is that you can become more justified as you become more obedient, meaning that your status with God can increase or decrease based off what you do rather than being secured upon the merits of Christ alone. It's a gospel, and there are many of them. This is just one particular brand of it. It's a gospel that is Christ plus our works that saves us, and that's a different gospel. The people in in Martin Luther's time, they were so troubled by wondering if they had done enough. Or or achieved enough merit to save them from hell and reduce their sentence in purgatory. So what these people were actually doing, which is so sad to consider, was they're praying to dead Christians that they might plead on their behalf to God to save them. Instead of going to Christ personally in forgiveness, in prayer for forgiveness. Every part of the Christian life was mediated through someone else. And these people were often poor and spending every last bit of money they had on indulgences, which were essentially buying forgiveness guaranteed and authenticated by the church. As the, uh, the infamous monk Tetzel, who would sell these indulgences, he would go into towns and say, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And the reformers came along and said, no, That's not the way of salvation, and it's not the true gospel that the church has proclaimed since Christ, given to the apostles and the church fathers. And Luther comes across the text in Romans 1.17, that the righteous shall live by faith. And he saw that righteousness was an immovable gift purchased by Christ, not something that can fluctuate based based off of our own merit. If you're not familiar with the story of the Reformation, I encourage you to look at a book by Michael Reeves called The Unquenchable Flame. It's out in the bookstall in our lobby for $5. Uh, It's a really informative and and easy read that introduces you to the Reformation in a really entertaining way. Uh, And if someone buys it before you do, don't worry, I'll, I'll order more copies. We're in Romans 5. Why am, I, why am I recounting all this? Why do I say all this? I say it because 
I want to show that the reason we're Protestant is not because it's just our preference or what we happen to be by tradition. It's not like a t-shirt where we prefer this brand to that or, or this team over that. The reason we're Protestant is because we believe the words of Romans 5. The reason we're Protestant is because we believe the reformers were recovering and articulating the one true and universal gospel of the entire church taught in the scriptures, confirmed by the spirit, and the only gospel by which sinners may be saved. That's the gospel preached in Romans five fifteen through 21. And many martyrs have, throughout church history, spilled their blood to defend this doctrine. And may we not easily cast it off as a matter of secondary importance. Mothers have lost sons and daughters and children have lost parents because they counted the right proclamation of the gospel worthy of their own lives. And may we, who don't face that kind of persecution, but live comfortably in this, 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 this neighborhood, not lay down the mantle of the Reformation... Or dishonor the words of God and the martyrs of the church by counting trivial what they consider to be foundational. Justification by faith alone is the great gospel blessing that Christ secures to us. It's what undoes the curse of the fall and it's how the serpent's head is crushed underneath our feet. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. What results from an abundance of grace... And a right standing of God is the third part of our gift that Christians gain in salvation. Dominion over sin and death. Dominion over sin and death. What once had dominion over us in the curse of Adam is inverted through the actions of Christ. So that we now actually have dominion over it. The entire section begins in verse 12 with The entrance of sin into the world, and then in verse 14 says, yet death reigns. And by the end, in verse 21, Paul shows that we now have dominion over death. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Look at verse 17. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Did you notice that those who reign are those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness? You might have expected him to say, As death reigned, so grace reigned. Which he kind of says that in verse 21. But here he says, those who reign are those who receive the free gift of salvation. All who believe in Christ now actually reign in this life. Those who were once rebels and slaves to the passions of this world now actually become kings of it. We we are co-heirs with Christ over sin and death. And through his death, we are not only made new, but we're transferred into another kingdom. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And our inheritance is nothing short of the entire world. Because that is the heritage heritage promised to Abraham and to all who have the faith of Abraham. 
And I love in verse 21, he says that death reigned, or sorry, verse 17, death reigned in the past tense. Because as soon as the grace of Christ awakens the sinner, the reign of sin and death ceases. Two kingdoms cannot exist on the same land. Two kings cannot rule over one human heart. One must win out. And for those who have repented and believed in Christ, Christ is our king. And death no longer has dominion over us. Redeemed men and women shall no longer be enslaved to the world through Adam's curse. But rather the world shall lie set free at their feet. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. How many of us walk through the Christian life defeated with our heads hung? How many of us struggle from trial to trial because we actually aren't fully aware of the showers of grace that have fallen down from heaven upon us? How many of us, when the devil accuses us of our sins, just half-heartedly throw rocks at him rather than picking up our conqueror's sword and shoving it down his throat? That kind of imagery. As the great preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, I love this quote. When the devil opens his mouth in slander, it gives me an opportunity to ram the sword of truth down his throat. We often just play defense in the Christian life. Play offense. Find the sins that pry upon your desires and kill them. The Christian life is a dangerous enterprise. It's why... One theologian, I can't remember who said it, said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. But we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. We are prisoners no more, Paul is telling us. We are like Joseph, who began in the dungeons, but in a moment, by the appointment of the king, ruled over all of Egypt. Christ finds us. As prisoners to sin and death, and in a moment, by the appointment of the king, by the justification of the king, he frees us so that we might rule over once what once imprisoned us. In Adam we fall, but in Christ we rise. May we, then, not be those who are turned away at heaven's gate because we relied upon our own merit to save us. But may we be those who would proceed triumphantly through the pearly gates because we know that our father is the king and we are there at his free invitation. And when someone asks us, what's the basis, the grounds for which we are there, we will respond with all the redeemed in heaven, washed clean by his blood because the sinless savior died. My sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's the song we'll sing for eternity. Would you pray with me? Father, what a great salvation you've given us. And how often we belittle it even unknowingly by not fully grasping what you've given us in your son. Lord, as we go about this week, 
by your Spirit, would you help us to keep in front of our eyes at all times the abundance of grace you've given us, the right standing with God that you've secured for us, and the dominion over sin and death that is promised to us in the gospel. Lord, we confess that it often doesn't feel like this. It often feels like we are just trying to stay alive from one trial to the next. But even there, Lord, even there in the darkness of our anxiety and our depression and our doubts, you are faithful to us, you are good, and you are patient. You come wherever we are and sit with us. And you cause us to rise up from the ashes of condemnation, up from the curse of Adam, into the free and overflowing grace of the gospel that is purchased at great cost. Lord, keep this in front of our eyes. Make it change us. Cause new birth in us. And nourish us as we go about the Christian life. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.